If you've got a Bible, open with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12 is where we find ourselves this morning as we've been working our way through this book together for the last couple of months. Um, as we went out in the email this week, said that this is going to be the last week in this series for a little while. We'll push pause on it. We'll hit Advent for the next four weeks, taking a look at Jesus, who He is, why He's come, just celebrate. Him. Brian's going to kick that series off next week with a message. Duncan will follow him. Uh, and then I'll be back November 6th, November, December 16th, um, back in the pulpit uh, to continue and conclude that series. And then we'll hit uh, Christmas and Christmas Eve. And then following Christmas Eve, we'll come back to 1 John. And then we'll bounce to another series for a little bit. And then we'll come back to 1 John. And then we'll hit another series in the spring. And so I just, I just like to draw things out. You guys know me. Right, But 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12 is where we are. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read together. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now, I don't know about your children, those of you who have them, but my children have the definitive word on just about everything there is to know in life. Um, I have one who is 11 going on 21, and one who is 7 going on 37, right? And she knows all there is to know. But they have the definitive words. Uh, but sometimes kids do really have valuable insight into certain issues and topics. Um, consider what some of these kids had to say about love. Listen to what Chrissy at age 6 says. She says, love is when you go out to eat and you give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Right, that's... I would have to concur, particularly if they're Chick-fil-A french fries. Terry, who's age four, said, Love is what makes you smile when you're tired. Danny, who's seven, said, Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him just to make sure the taste is okay. Bobby, age five, said, Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. That was profound. Noel, age seven, said, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, and then he wears it every single day. <laughs> yeah, men are simple. May, May Ann, age four, said, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day long. Karen, at age seven, said, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down, and little stars come out of you. <laughs> know what she's been reading or watching, but uh, I'd like to avoid that. Jessica at age seven says, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it, but if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. And Rebecca at age eight said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. She said, that's love. But these are the definitive words on love from kids. Some of them are very humorous. Some of them are incredibly profound. And it's one thing to get the definitive word on love from children. It's another thing to get the definitive word on love from God. It's author and source. 
And that's where we come to this morning in the text in 1 John. John's been building to this point in the letter. He's talked about love on a couple of different occasions already. On one occasion he said love is an indication that you're walking in step with God, that you're in fellowship with God, that you're walking in the light. On another occasion, that was in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he said love is evidence that we are indeed born of God, that we're children of God. And so he's been building to this point in the letter. He's talked about love twice to come to this really pinnacle text on the, on the issue of love in the book of 1 John and really in much of the Bible. In 1 John, we've been seeing that there's all these evidences that God gives us to assure us that we belong to Him. And love is one of those central pieces of evidence that we can look at to assure ourselves that we know God rightly and that we know God truly. Right now, you can't divorce love and say that because you're a charitable and a kind person, it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live, if you're, as long as you're kind and charitable to others, then you're a Christian. It doesn't work that way. All three of these things go together. What you believe, how you live, how you love are all wrapped into one. But love is one of the central pieces of evidence that John gives us for those who are seeking to assure themselves that they know God rightly and they know Him truly. And if that's the case, if love is at the, one of the central pieces of evidence, then it's essential that we understand what love is, how it works, and how to be the kinds of loving people that God calls us to be. And so let's start with what love is. Listen, love is an unconditional commitment to the needs of others, and oftentimes before or instead of our own. That's love. Think of Rebecca at age eight. It says, my granddad paints my grandmother's toenails because she can't bend over even when he has arthritis. He puts his needs aside to serve hers. It's an unconditional commitment to the needs of others. See, love is not primarily or properly defined as an emotion. It's not. Notice right off in the text that we read together this morning that the text doesn't say anything about God feeling a certain way. It doesn't say anything about that. It talks about God acting in a loving way, not feeling loving feelings. God acts in a loving way through the sending of His Son because He is indeed love. In verse 9 and 10, we see it that He's sent, that He's sent, that God is acting, He's moving. There's action involved in what God is doing. He doesn't sit back and just speak the words, I love you, but he demonstrates it through action, through commitment, unconditionally moving toward his people, right? And so love is not properly understood as an emotion, but as action. However, before John mentions that God acts in this loving way, he talks about how God is himself love. We'll look at that more here in a moment. But listen, I love the way C.S. Lewis defines love in mere Christianity. He says, love is the in the Christian sense, does not mean an emotion. It is a state not of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will which we naturally have about ourselves and must learn to have to people. Like we're born with a state of the will that seeks our good, that meets our needs. And we must learn to have that kind of state of the will and of action and commitment toward those who are around us. Now, while love is not properly defined or understood as an emotion, it can produce it. It can produce emotion. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do, we find this to be one of the greatest secrets. When we are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking them more. But if you do them a good turn, which is English, 
like do something nice for them, right? Kind, loving towards them. You will find yourself disliking them less. And I don't know about you, but I found that to be true in my own life, and many of you have as well. And the reason I know this is because some of you are parents and you have infants. <laughs> you have children, right? Think about when you first bring that baby home from the hospital, right? They send you home, particularly when it was our first kid. We were like, I can't believe they're letting us take this child home from the hospital by ourselves, right? What are we going to do with this thing? So we get it to, our, to the house and, you know, the, the baby's crying every two to three hours because it's dirty or it's hungry, right? That's really the only reason it cries, right? And it just cries incessantly, like clockwork, every two to three hours. And so you're in bed at night and you finally drift off to sleep for like 30 minutes and then the baby starts to wail on the monitor and you get up out of bed, right? At least if you're a loving husband, right? You get up out of bed, you go get the baby, you change the diaper and then you bring it to mom for the, for the milk that it needs sustain it and nourish it. it gets its belly full it's got a clean diaper you go lay it back down and it goes back to sleep then guess what two hours later three hours later it's doing it again and again and again and day after day week after week month after month you are setting your needs aside for the sake of that little child and guess what you're getting nothing in return from that baby nothing in return from that he's not even smiling yet it doesn't even look at you like, oh, you're so wonderful, right? It doesn't even smile at you, but you keep pouring yourself out. And you know what? Over the course of years, even whenever they begin to, to like get into everything, right? They, they move out of the crying and eating and sleeping stage into, I want to explore, and they're crawling around. They, they touch everything you tell them not to touch. Everything you try to put away from them, they try and climb up and find, right? They just continue to push the envelope and push the limits. And all that love that you're pouring out towards them, this commitment toward them, even when you're getting nothing in return, means that whenever they are teenagers and they know, really know everything, right, and they are rebellious as the day is long, you still love them. You still have an affection for them. Your heart still wrenches and rejoices at their choices. Why? Because love, that commitment, produces emotion. It's not emotion in itself, but it can produce it. It's an unconditional commitment to the needs of others that over time, right, it produces this affection that we have for people, this love, this deep, even emotional connection to them. That's what love is, an unconditional commitment. But love, listen, love has a goal in mind, particularly the love of God. It has a goal in mind. It's not a passive kind of love. It's an active love. Right? Listen, John said this way in verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That word perfected, it literally means this. To accomplish its intended end or goal, right? To, to fulfill its purpose, to hit its aim, to, to hit its target. If you think of love this way, that God's love for us has a target that it's aiming at and he draws back the bow to fire the arrow, to, pit, to hit the bullseye, right? Or that he's got an aim that he's working toward and he's, as he, as he, as he, as he's got a, an end he's working toward and he's taking steps in that direction. God's love is moving us in a direction towards an end. It's got a purpose in mind that it's wanting to accomplish Right? And it's stacking things up in our lives to achieve it. Right? God's love has a goal. And his, the goal of God's love, I'll say it this way to you. John says it this way in verse 12. One of the goals of God's love for us is that we would love 
of one another. And as a result, the person and power of God, whom no one has seen, he says in verse 12, would come to life and be active in his people. It would be put on display through his people, through this unconditional commitment that they have toward those in their lives, toward their needs. But what does this look like, right? That's where, it, like, all this talk about love, what does it actually look like? What does unconditional commitment look like? Let me give you four things it looks like. Two of them from 1 John, two of them from other parts of the Bible. I'm going to give you four of them this morning. So if you, listen, if you're a note taker, buckle up. We're going we're gonna to get after these, okay? First thing is this. First thing is this. Sometimes you've got to lay aside, right, you've got to lay aside your needs for the needs of others. Unconditional commitment to their needs. And what that means at times is we have to lay aside our lifestyle. I, I, I'm not going to pull punches with you this morning. We're going we're to press on, I think, some of the issues at the very heart of this. You've got to lay aside your lifestyle. Back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, John said this. He said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but with actions and in truth. With actions and in truth. And we said then in 1 John chapter 3 that what John is saying is not saying you can never say I love you to someone because they forget and you need to say it sometimes, right? You could, he's not saying you can never say I love you to someone, but there is a time in which there is a showing kind of love that is needed. And in those moments in which a showing kind of love is needed, a saying kind of love will not suffice. But a showing kind of love is required indeed and in truth. It corresponds to a real need in that person's life. And you're showing up in that need. A showing kind of love takes the pot of soup off of the stove and walks it next door and knocks on, rings the doorbell and says, here's dinner. A showing kind of love shows up at someone's property and cuts down overgrown trees and cleans out gutters. A showing kind of love at times writes a check whenever someone is inundated with medical bills. They write a check to help provide for that individual or that family. A showing kind of love. A showing kind of love is needed. John says, not a saying kind of love. There are instances in which a showing kind of love is the only kind of love that will suffice. And when the showing kind of love is needed, here's the question. Well, I lay aside my lifestyle. Because my lifestyle oftentimes is composed of my discretionary time and my discretionary income. Well, I lay aside my discretionary time and while I lay aside my discretionary income, to show a commitment to the needs of those who are around me. Sometimes it requires that we lay aside our lifestyle. Second, second, sometimes it requires to love, to show this kind of unconditional commitment requires that we lay aside our pride. If you go back into 1 John again, back in chapter 2, John speaks of Cain and Abel. And he speaks of how Cain because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous, that Cain slay his brother, right? Brought his life to an end and became a murderer. Now, I don't think what John was trying to tell us in that text was that there's a big rampant murder problem going on in the church that Christians are killing other Christians. They were being killed by people in the culture, but the, the church was rallying together. So I don't think he's worried about Christians raising up to kill other Christians in the church. So don't be like Cain, don't kill the person sitting next to you this morning. That's not what, that wasn't the application. 
I think rather what the application was was this. Do not succumb to what led Cain to slay his brother. Which was jealousy and envy and conceit born of pride. Because his brother's deeds were righteous and his were evil. See, instead of Cain looking at his brother and saying, let me learn from you. Would you pray for me that I could offer my offering with the same kind of faith that you and dependence upon God that you brought your offering with. Let me learn from you. You do this better than I do. You you know what it is to depend upon God. Abel, teach me. Pray for me that I would be that kind of a worshiper. That I would bring that kind of offering before God. Instead of responding in that way, he responds in jealousy, out of pride, and murders his brother. Let me ask you this. There, how do you respond whenever you look around you at other people and you see ways in which God has gifted them? Things that they, areas of their life where God has matured them faster than, he, than you've matured. And he's matured you in some of those areas. Or he's gifted them in certain ways that you have not been gifted and you compare yourself to them. Is the first inclination of your heart to respond, to to encourage them. To say, let me learn from you. Would you pray for me? You, you, You are so hospitable. You receive people into your life so well. right? You make strangers feel like family in a moment. Through a handshake. Through a, I can, I want to learn that from you. I want to grow in that. You do that so well. God has gifted you. Would you pray for me that I can become hospitable like you are? Or do we stand back and out of pride simmer? Because they're better at something I am. Do we encourage others? Do we remain silent? I think that's at the heart of what John was saying. If you're going to love others, it requires laying down my pride and not simmering in jealousy. We're saying God's gifted you to teach or God's gifted you with hospitality, the way you serve people. Teach me how you do that. Pray for me that I wouldn't seek the spotlight, but I would just be one who wants to serve those who are around me. Even if I get no accolades, applause, awards, and I have no achievements to show for it, that I just serve people freely and fully. Would you, you do that so well. Would you teach me, pray for me, Help me learn that. Is that our first inclination to encourage and learn from others rather than despise them because they're better than us in certain areas? I I gotta move. We could talk about that for a while. Third, in order to love this way, you have to lay aside at times your liberty. Your liberty. Now listen, I know we live in America. I know we all enjoy our freedoms. Right, where there are times in which if you're going to love, you have to lay aside some of the freedoms that you are able to enjoy for the sake of the welfare and well-being of those who are around you. Right? Paul speaks of this in the book of 1 Corinthians when he talks about this issue of food being sacrificed to idols in the temple and how there are some who are going there and they know it's just, it's just beef. Just lamb, right? It's just chicken. Everything tastes like chicken. It's just meat. 
So they go and they eat and they enjoy this meat that's been prepared on, on the heels of the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. And there are some who, because their consciences won't allow them, because they know it was offered in the worship of a, this foreign god, this pagan deity, they can't go and eat that meat. And he calls upon those with a stronger conscience to care for those who have a weaker conscience. And that at times they may need to lay aside their liberty, that they are free to go and enjoy this for the welfare of their weaker brothers and sisters so they would not cause them to stumble into idolatry or what they perceive to be idolatry. Now listen, one of the issues that often arises when you talk about liberty when it comes to Christian circles is the issue of alcohol. And listen, many of you have heard me say this before. Listen, I, what, what, what I, <laughs> it is not a sin to drink alcohol. Drunkenness is a sin, right? Being under the control of the Holy Spirit or under the control of spirits are two different things. Okay? You with me? Those are two different things. And so it's not, it's not a sin to consume alcohol, right? What is sinful is if your accountability group consists of Johnny Walker and Jim Beam and Jose Cuervo and Jack Daniels. That's, that, if that's the people you spend the majority of your time with, right? You've probably got an issue that we need to talk about later. But even in the exercise of moderation in that liberty, there are times in which you need to lay that aside because of the welfare of somebody who is weaker in that area, who maybe comes from a family that is riddled with addiction, or maybe comes from an addictive past and background themselves, and you know that about them. And so even though you're free to exercise liberty, you restrain that and you lay it aside for their sake. That's love. That's a commitment to their needs above and before my own. And then fourth, to love this way at times looks like laying aside your comfort. Laying aside your comfort. Listen, I've been a distance runner for the majority of my life. Um, I, I ran cross country in high school and college and I've been an off and on over the last, I don't know, 20 years. God, it's, it's hard for me to say that even to think that there's 20 years of my life that have been outside of college. <laughs> but anyway, um, as I get older, one of the things that I find is that there are more aches and pains that begin to show up in my body um, on the heels of really intense workouts. Um, and so what I've discovered is these wonderful people called Arosti. And Rosti is a soft tissue therapist, okay? Now, some of you are like, you just go get a massage. This is not a massage. Nobody signs up for this, all right? This is not pleasurable. In fact, it's incredibly painful. But what they do is they find all the deep trigger points and knots in your tendons and in your muscles, and they just strip them out. They take their thumb, and they just run it as deep as they can, and they find those areas of pressure, and they they, they put pressure on them until it releases. And they kind of realign the fascia, that little, that the, the pieces, that the little like coating of tissue that goes around all your organs and muscles. They realign all that, get it straightened back out, work through those knots. Because there's areas of dysfunction in your body 
that, that need to be addressed. And listen, some of you are like, I just go get orthotics. You can go get orthotics and put them in your shoes, but you know what that does? It supports for many people, some, some legitimately need it, but for many people, because of the bone structures that they have, but for many people, what that's doing is it's supporting the dysfunction, not addressing the dysfunction. And so the longer you support it, right, it just begins to manifest itself in different ways in different places. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Listen, I know I'm talking to my... But so they work through all of that and they break it up. They break it up. But it is not a comfortable process. Okay? It is painful. I, I tell them every time I've gone to see them, listen, I would not come see you if this was not as productive as it is for me because it is incredibly painful. And listen, there are times in our lives where we have to lay aside our comfort in order to address dysfunction that we might see in the body. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, motivated by love, out of love, in love for that person, we tell them the truth. The God's honest truth, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, so that they might see maturity at times. We are called as Christians, right, to be the, the thumbs of God at times. Not in a punitive way to punish others, but in a loving way to help address dysfunction that we might see around us, people that we're close to. Now listen, we don't just roll up in people's lives and be like, boom, boom, boom. Right? I saw all this from a day. It's people that we're walking closely and personally with. Right? But we begin to address some of the dysfunction. We put those, people put those things on the table and we say, do you think that's wise? Do you think that's loving? Right? And, you begin to address, and sometimes it's like the thumbs of God working out dysfunction in other people's lives to help them mature in Christ's likeness. But in order for us to do that, we have to lay aside our comfort because it is much more comfortable to just be an orthotic. Now, those are four ways that we show this kind of commitment to others above ourselves. But when we fail to do that, if we refuse to do this, listen, I want you to know that there's a backside of this if we refuse to love the way that God calls us to love. And we could talk about all of, another 20 ways we could do that. But if we refuse to do it, I want you to know that our lives, your life, will become a living hell. That's what life is without love. It's a living hell. Look at what John says in verse 8. He says it's inconceivable for a person who knows God not to love. And it's impossible for a person who does not know God to love because God himself is love. It's inconceivable for a person who's been born of God, this God who is love not to love in the way that they interface and engage with people who are around them. It's inconceivable that wouldn't happen. And it's impossible for a person who does not know God not to do nice things for people, not to feel affections, kind, kind, warm feelings towards other people, but to really love, lay aside their needs for the sake of others. 
Because God himself is love. To know God is to know love. And listen, he says a life, essentially a life without the knowledge of God. Not intellectual knowledge, right? Where you look at a, like a, 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 a fill in the blank or a multiple choice and say, yeah, I'll check that. Or true, false, yes, that's true about God. Yes, that's true about God. Yes, that's true. He's talking about an intellectual knowledge, but a relational knowledge of God. Of experiencing him. Of knowing him personally. Of walking with him. John says, listen, those who do not uh, uh, those who do not love do not know they don't have that relational aspect in their, their their spiritual life they may have an intellectual checklist but no relational experience and he says those who do not know god they do not love and those who do not love they don't know god in other words, what John is saying is this. If, you're not, if you don't know God, don't have a relationship with Him, not walking with Him, then right now, your life is a foretaste of the endless ache that will be your forever destiny in a real place called hell. Right now, it's a foretaste of that. And without love, it turns our lives into this living hell. In fact, one way to know that you've never really come to know God, but you're just a good moral person is that your heart is wrapped up in all of your own selfish pursuits. And you're unwilling to lay aside any of your wants or any of your agenda for the sake and well-being of others. Right? You'll use people instead of loving them. You'll use them to get what you want from them rather than laying aside your wants, your needs for them. You'll burn bridges rather than building them. There's some people who just have a trail of arson in their past. Well, they've burned down bridge after bridge after bridge after bridge instead of building. You'll push people away rather than pulling them in. Your presence in the lives of people without love, your presence in their lives will be painful and not pleasurable. You'll have all kinds of relational shrapnel in your past because people will see under your actions down to the motives that the only reason you're doing something kind for me is because you want something from me. When you stop needing something from me, then I, you will cease to do things that are kind and loving towards me. I know I'm not talking about any of you. <laughs> Maybe people you know. Right? That, it turns it into a living hell. Because it destroys all your relationships. Now some of you are like, well, if I love, won't I get used? Could I be hurt? Would, could my heart be broken? And you know what the answer to that question is? Yes. It's the nature of love. There's always that possibility that if you are unconditionally committed to someone, that they could crush your heart. They could break your heart. They could hurt you. could be painful. They could use you. That's the nature of love. C.S. Lewis, I'll, I'll quote him because he's just brilliant, much smarter than I am. He says it this way. In a, book, in a book called Four Loves, he says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. It's to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. That little pet you got, Right? That cute little fuzzy dog, that despicable cat that you might have roaming around. Not even to them. He says, rather wrap it up carefully round with hobbies 
and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable. It will become impenetrable, irredeemable. He says the alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and disturbances of love is hell. A life without love is a living hell, a foretaste of the endless ache of an eternal destiny. So, I got two, two things as we close. And the first one is this. I know you like, you should have one thing as we close. I got two. Where do we get this kind of love? First, let me say this, say it this way. You've got to draw on the inexhaustible source of love. You've got to draw on the inexhaustible source of love. In verse 7, John says, love is from God. You know, I, I grew up in, in South Louisiana and went to New Orleans on many occasions. And in New, downtown New Orleans, there is a boardwalk along the mighty Mississippi River. And the Mississippi River is a massive river system with all kinds of tributaries that pour in it from all different places uh, in, the, in the Midwest, and it branches out in a delta that dumps thousands of gallons of water a day into the Gulf of Mexico. But it has a headwater. You know what that headwater is? It's a small, clear lake in northern Minnesota. And out of that lake trickles this 18-foot, narrower than this room, this 18-foot wide, 18-inch deep stream that you can walk across. That's the headwaters of the Mississippi. And then it travels 2,300 miles to the Gulf of Mexico where it becomes this raging body of water that pushes everything in its path towards the Gulf. And whenever John says love is from God, he's saying this, God is the source. He is the headwaters of love. And as the headwaters of love, it is he in himself is inexhaustible. Is inexhaustible. You can't exhaust the love of God. You can't drain it dry. But not only, and so you've got to draw on that. Where are you trying, where, what source are you looking to? What well are you trying to dig to give you the kind of capacity and resources that you need to love people in the way that God's called you to love them? Do you have a shallow pit in your backyard that you're just trying to lap up water out of? Or do you have a massive, inexhaustible source? Are you looking to Him? And here's the way that you look to Him. is by meditating on the costly love of God. You've got to meditate on the costly love of God. Notice that twice in these six verses, John addresses his readers as beloved. See, before he ever tells us to love, you know what he tells you? He tells you you are loved. You are loved, church. You're the beloved of God. 
He says it in verse 7. He says it again in verse 11. And this is of massive, massive, massive importance when learning to love. And here's why. And you know this to be true from your own experience. You are not born. You're not born with the framework of what it is to love, but you learn to love through your experience of being loved. Have you ever noticed that? You learn to love through your own experience of being loved. Some, for some people, it happens through a biological family. They learn to love because they had a loving mom and dad who were committed to their needs above their own, sacrificed for them. You learn through the bio, your biological family. Some love, learn to love in romantic relationships where one partner lays aside their needs and you've never experienced love like that and you taste it for the first time and you learn to lay aside yours. Some learn to love in platonic friendships where one friend lays aside their needs for the, friend, uh, the, the, the needs of other, their, the, the other friend. Getting tongue-tied now. Some learn to love in the church because they have a new family that God has bound them together with. And they have to see brothers and sisters laying aside their needs for their own. But you only learn to love from your experience of being loved. And so for us, we have to step back and meditate on this costly love of God. And think about how it is that he's loved us in Jesus Christ, his son, which is the Mount, this by the way, it's the Mount Everest of love. There is no higher peak of love. There is no greater example of love than in what Jesus Christ laying down his life, stretching out his arms, being nailed to the cross to extend his arms around everyone who would come to him in faith and repentance. That is love, John says. Not that we loved God. We didn't initiate it. We responded to it. But that he loved us and he gave his son to take the wrath of God, that's what that word propitiation means, to take the wrath of God for us and to turn the wrath of God from us so that we might enjoy God as a father and know him intimately and personally. That he gave one and only, one of a kind. I don't have a one of a kind kid. I don't. I got two kids. They both share some of my DNA. Hopefully they have more of their moms than mine. Can I get a witness? Anybody? But they're not one of a kinds. God, that word only literally means one of a kind, son. That he gave him up for us all. This is the costly love of God. That's why Frederick Lehman, back in the 1800s, write to him, the love of God. I'm going to close with, with it. He says this. He says, the love of God is far greater than any tongue or pen can tell. He goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave His Son to win. His erring child He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. Then He says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? If every body of water on the face of the earth was filled with ink, and were the skies of parchment made. If you thought about from where the sun rose in the east to where it sets in the west, it was nothing but a scroll that stretched across the heavens. Were every stalk on earth a quill, every stick, every branch, every log were a quill that you dipped into the body of waters which are full of ink. He said, and every person who's ever lived was a scribe by trade. It's what they did all day, every day. He said, it, to write the love of God above, it would drain the ocean 
dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels saw. The way that you grow in love to be unconditionally committed to the needs of others is by meditating on how God was unconditionally committed to your need to meet you in your sin, even whenever you brought nothing to Him. Because there is nothing in us that warranted God to love us. God does not love us because of who we are. He loves us despite of who we are and because of who He is. And as you meditate on that, in the costly love of God in Jesus Christ, His Son. Then the love of God flows through you to be committed to the love of those who are around you. Redeemer, what if we were a church? And when the world did us, they said, these must belong to God. Look at how they love. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we are taken aback and astonished by the love that you have for us. Father, to know that even in our sin, in our trespasses, in our transgressions, even whenever we wanted nothing to do with you, you wanted everything to do with us. And that you showed that, you made that manifest. You revealed it through the sending of your Son. We are grateful. And not just grateful, but for those who have been born of you, we have that very love living on the inside of us. May we be a church that loves well by laying aside whatever it takes for us to sacrifice in order to love. Whether that be our lifestyles or our liberties. Whether that be our comfort or our pride. May we be a people marked by love. So that for those whose lives are a living hell, a foretaste, an appetizer, of an eternity separated from you. They might look and they might see this God that no one has seen put on display through your church. We pray in Jesus' name.